What is God like? What is he like? This is the question that has perplexed theologians, philosophers, scientists, and pretty much everyone else. Amen? So if you don't find yourself in that first three, you certainly have been perplexed by this question. What is God like? Well, I suppose that just before you get to that question, asking what God's like, you must answer the question, is there a God? Is there a God anyways? Is there a God that exists? Does God exist? For the hardened skeptic, there is no evidence that has convinced them of his existence, except according to God, in chapter, in Romans, the first chapter, the largest piece of evidence that there is for the existence of God, the universe. The universe is the largest piece of evidence that there is a God. One of the great philosophical questions that must be asked when staring at the brute fact of the universe is this, why is there anything at all? Why does anything exist at all? Why does the universe exist? Why does anything exist? I want to briefly share some evidence for God uh, from the existence of the universe. When you look at the world, when you look at the universe, there's evidence that pours forth that there is a God. And I want to use what's called the cosmological argument. Okay, stay with me. I'm going to use a lot of technical terms, but I want you to stay right with me and hear uh, this message tonight. The cosmological argument. Now, when you make an argument for the existence of God, it's not an argument like a yelling match on the street somewhere. It's the case for something. Amen? So the cosmological argument is the case for God from the cosmos or the universe. And the cosmological argument goes like this. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. Now when you look at an argument like this, the, only, the, the two premises, if you accept the conclusion of the two premises in the affirmative, if you're going to refute the argument, you have to somehow provide evidence to deny at least one of the premises. Now if you can deny one of the premises, you can refute the, the, the argument. So the only thing necessary for the conclusion to follow is that the two premises need to be more plausibly true than not. Let me stress that. They don't need to be, you don't need to know the first two absolutely sure. In fact, I want to tell you something. There's very little that you know absolutely for sure. You would be surprised at how much of our lives that we accept on the probability that it mostly is true. Amen? So the only way to refute it is to... to Deny one of the premises, and the two premises have to be more plausibly true than not. Well, I want to give a couple evidence, uh, evidences to, uh, well, whatever has a beginning has a cause. That's pretty much uh, self-explanatory. You had a beginning, you had a cause. I had a beginning, I had a cause. So when you look around the universe, it's pretty much obvious. Um, scientists really don't uh, put much of a battle up against that one because they'd have to deny much of science to actually refute that claim. The second one is the one that they try to worm around on, and that is this, the universe had, had a beginning. Now, there's a lot of evidence to the fact that the universe had a beginning. And I want to talk a little bit about that evidence right now very quickly. I'm going to gust up to 250 here, okay? Um, for the first piece of evidence is the philosophical evidence. I want to talk to you about philosophical evidence. This isn't scientific, this is philosophical. The philosophical evidence for the beginning of the universe is this, that 
time, you cannot have an infinite regression of past time events. In other words, if time went back infinitely into the past, we would never have gotten to today. So therefore, uh, the universe had a beginning because in order for us to reach today, time could not be infinite in the past. You see that? We're at the end of time, and if time was infinite in the past, we wouldn't have got to the end of time, which is today. The next second is the end of time, and we're continuing to go into the future. So it is this. The, you cannot have an infinite regression of past time. Now, I'll just leave that uh, at there, and just a p little piece of scientific evidence for you um, science nuts. Uh, they have gone down, and they have tried to divide time uh, as much as they possibly can, and they've come up with the smallest indivisible measure of time, which is the Planck second, and it's 10 to the minus 43 seconds, and you can't divide time any further than that. So that kind of is another piece uh, in that puzzle. Well, I want to move on to the scientific evidence, and I want to use an, an uh, acrostic for this to go quickly through this, and it's the acrostic using the word surge. S-U-R-G-E. Now, back, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, there used to be a thing called Surge Cola. Uh, I don't know, does anybody remember this, Surge Cola? This is, I think this is like if you really want it, this is before, like, you know, some of the modern uh, energy drinks, and this was the precursor to that. So this was, like, probably when I was a kid, if you wanted, like, a, a rock star or something like that, we actually went out and got a Surge Cola. Well, anyways, I'm not talking about Surge Cola. I'm talking about Surge, and it's an acrostic for the scientific evidence for the existence of God. The S stands for this, the, the second law of thermodynamics. S is for the second law of thermodynamics. Thermodynamics is the study of energy, matter and energy in the universe, and the second law states that the universe is running out of usable energy. Scientists have discovered that the amount of energy in the universe is running out. You say, well, so what? What does that have to do with anything? What does that mean? Well, the first law of thermodynamics states that the total amount of energy in the universe is constant. What that means is that the total amount of energy in the universe is finite, it's constant, it's finite. So there's, a, there's an exact amount of it, in other words. So here's an illustration. Let's say your vehicle was the universe and your gas tank was the, the amount of energy that the entire universe had. When you fill that gas tank up with gas, could your car have kept running for eternity past and still be running right now? No. The second law, thermodynamics, thusly proves that the universe had a beginning, thus the second premise in our argument. The U stands for this. The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding. Einstein's theory of general relativity predicted that the universe had to be an expanding universe. But Einstein didn't have proof until the late 1920s when Edwin Hubble was looking at distant stars and galaxies through his telescope out there in California, and he discovered what is called the red shift. Now, I'm, I'm way over your head, right? Now stay with me. I'm going to explain this. The red shift is when you, you know something about this, and I'm going to prove it to you in a second. If you've ever watched the Weather Channel, you know about red shift, and I'm going to tell you about it in a second. Red shift is 
uh, light from an object that is shifted to the red when, when the object is moving away from you. It goes into the blue shift when light from that object is moving towards you. And so what Hubble discovered is when he looked into the distant galaxies, he saw the red shift and he saw that the stars, the, the far off stars and the far off galaxies were moving away and thus there's an expanding universe. You see this when you watch the Weather Channel and you see what's called the Doppler radar. The Doppler effect is what you see when you see the movement of those systems and so on. That's just a, a, a thing that you can relate it to. It's a little bit different than that, but that's close to it. So the expanding universe is exactly what you would have if indeed the universe is finite. Now the R, the R in surge is for the radiation afterglow. The radiation afterglow is also known as the cosmic microwave background. If the universe sprang into existence a finite time ago, it was theorized that there would be leftover radiation from the creation event when God created the heavens and the earth. And they didn't, ha they didn't see this, but there was two men in New Jersey, of all places, right, working at Bell Labs. Uh, their names were Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, and they discovered the radiation afterglow in 1965. In fact, they won a Nobel Prize for their discovery. What it is in layman's terms is the light and heat from the initial explosion of the universe that they're actually looking at. And this, is, this actually made the news about six months ago when it came back up. Arno Penzias eventually admitted this, and he's an atheist, he admitted this, the best data we have concerning the creation event are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Amen. The G is for this, the great galaxy seeds in the radiation afterglow. The G is for great galaxy seeds. After finding the predicted expanding universe and radiation afterglow, another thing that the scientists have discovered is the great galaxy seeds. Scientists predicted that they would find slight temperature variations in the afterglow, and these temperature variations enabled matter to congregate by gravitational attraction into galaxies. This is what what enabled galaxies to form while we're actually in a galaxy right now was because of these great galaxy seeds that formed in the early universe. So we sent a, a satellite up, more than likely from right over here on our coast, right, where with all these satellites. By the way, there was a satellite that exploded the other day that went up from Virginia, but this wasn't it. This one, this satellite went up in 1989, and it was called COBE, C-O-B-E, and it was short for Cosmic Background Explorer. And this went out there, and the project leader, whose name was George Smoot, a professor from UC Berkeley, said this in 1992 about the findings of Kobe. If you're religious, it's like looking at God. What they found was the great galaxy seeds, the temperature variations that allowed matter to congregate together to form galaxies in the early universe. Now the E, we're making our way through this, the E in surge is for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Here's a picture of Einstein. We all know Einstein, right? Amen. Have you ever noticed that when anyone calls you Einstein, they're not giving you a compliment? Hey, Einstein, way to go, right? It's not a compliment. Einstein's theory of general relativity which was the beginning of the end of the steady state theory, which suggested the universe could be eternal. General relativity, Einstein's theory, has been verified to five decimal places. 
And it demands an absolute beginning of time, space, matter, and energy. In other words, Einstein's theory of relativity basically shows this, and you should know this. It shows that time, space, matter, and energy are co uh, they're linked. They're, they're, you can't have one without the other, in other words. And so they're all relative to one another, and it proves uh, a, a finite universe. So we come to all, the end of all this information, all this evidence for the, the beginning of a universe. And so we are asking tonight the question, what is God like? Now, all the evidence points towards the beginning of a universe. Now, if the universe had a beginning, a cause brought the universe into existence. Now, that universe, everything we know about the universe, the, we know a little bit about what the cause had to be like. All time, space, matter, and energy came into existence at the creation event, and so whatever caused the universe must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, super intelligent, and personal. Spaceless because it created space, timeless because it created time, immaterial because it created matter, intelligent because of the fine-tuning that went into making sure that the universe didn't collapse back on itself, and personal because it decided to create. Chance can never create anything. Chance isn't a cause. Chance is what is a probability of something happening. So we can find just from the information on the, the beginning of the universe what sounds like God, amen, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, super intelligent, and personal being, and that is God. So the question tonight is, what is he like? Well, I want to turn your attention to our text tonight, which is Isaiah 40, verse 25 and following. God says this, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? What am I like? Who are you going to compare me to, God says? To whom then will you liken me? God says, he's, he's asking us to consider this question. Now here's the point tonight. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. You want to know what God's like? He answers, he, he leads you to the next verse. Verse 26, it says this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Look at creation. Look at the universe. The universe shows that there's a creator. We just went through some of the information, some of the evidence to the beginning of the universe and therefore the, what the creator must be like. And God here in Isaiah chapter 40, he asks the question, who are you going to liken me to? Who am I like? And he says, consider this, lift up your eyes and you go outside at night and you look up at the heavens and you look at the stars and you look at this and he says, and see who has created these things. Who has created all these things? And why is there something rather than nothing? Because there's a creator God. Now we learned from our brief science lesson tonight. You didn't know you were going to get that, but you did. It was like five minutes, but you passed, okay? So we're moving forward, amen? That the evidence points to a beginning of the universe, and that beginning was finely tuned. And from this we get the attributes of the cause, and we just went through this, that God is spaceless, Timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, and personal. Now, what God says here, God is saying, you want to know what I'm like? 
Look at the heavens and see. Consider who created these things. Well, we just looked at the heavens and we saw that according to everything that we do see, that the cause of the universe is something that most people call God, namely spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, intelligent, and personal. But then God goes on about his intelligence, his presence, and his power. And he asks this in verse 26. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Now, God is wanting us to consider the heavens and specifically what? The stars. He says, look up, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars, these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. This is the NASB. This is a different translation. It's a very literal translation. And you can see that God is talking about the stars, the heavens and the starry hosts in the heavens. And he says, who brings, who has brought these out? And I have called them by name. I've called them by name. So God is saying, as you consider what I'm like, and you go out in, into the nighttime, and you look up into the heavens, and you see the starry hosts, consider what I'm like, and ask yourself, who has brought each one of these stars out, and who has called them each by name? Wow. Wow. It's, it's pretty incredible. God is, is, is asking us to consider the stars. Now, we have a star that we're pretty fond of, and we call it the sun, Right? Yes, the sun is a star. It's the closest star. It's 93 million miles away. And, but it's our star. We live in a star system, right? For all you Star Trek fans or Star Wars, we live in a star system, solar system, and we have a star. And I want to give you a little bit of, to, to consider the stars. God asks us to look at the stars. Here's the lesson tonight. He says, look at the stars. Who has created all these things and who has named them all? So I want you to consider a little bit about the stars tonight, okay? So we're 93 million miles from the sun, and light travels at 186,282 miles per second, which means that light gets here from the sun in about eight minutes. But let's look at the rest of the heavens, the rest of the stars. Put that next picture up. If you look at this, you see some of the planets. You see Earth there. You see Venus. And you see Mars and Mercury, and these are basically all the smaller planets, right? And you look at them all, and then you see little Pluto. Pluto out there, right? Pluto's way out there. It's a little guy. In fact, um, Pluto got some bad news a few years ago. He was demoted as a planet. And um, Brian Regan actually does a, a, a funny bit on this, and he talks about how it must have been like when God called Pluto in to uh, tell him that he's no longer a planet. He says, Pluto, come on in, have a seat. It's the toughest thing I got to do around here, but I'm going to cut right to the quick. Pluto, you're no longer a planet. And so anyways, Pluto's not a planet, but you can see the relative size of all those planets. Now go to the next picture. Now, when you look at Jupiter... Jupiter is humongous, right? And then you look at Earth. See, see Earth with the little, uh, little arrow to it, towards it? Look at the size of Jupiter next to Earth. 
is unbelievable. Like one of the little dots on Jupiter is about the size of the Earth. Now, most people don't know what Jupiter is there for. Jupiter is there, it's like a vacuum cleaner for our solar system. It deflects, and because of its size, the gravitational force takes in a lot of the, the space debris heading into the interior of the solar system. And so, thank God for Jupiter and its size and its mass. Uh, look at Pluto, it's barely on the map there. Go to the next picture. This is our sun uh, compared to the rest of it on the scale. And you look at Jupiter. Jupiter is like a small little, uh, you know, I don't know, golf ball down there. And Earth is a little speck. And Pluto, you can barely see. Okay, go to the next one. Okay, th this is our sun all the way on the far left. And all the way up the scale, this is Arcturus, which is another star uh, in our solar system. And you can see, like, our sun is massive, and next to it, Arcturus is unbelievable in size. Now go to the next slide. Okay, you look at Arcturus down there in the little gray box down there, and then you look at Antares and Betelgeuse. Jupiter is, barely, is one pixel on that scale, and Earth is completely invisible. So Betelgeuse, where's Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse is a star that is in the constellation Orion. When you go out tonight and you see Orion's belt, look on the right shoulder of Orion, that point on the right shoulder of Orion, that's Betelgeuse. That's that star. And that's how big it is compared to us here on planet Earth. Now, how long would it take us to get to the nearest star if we traveled there? You say, who cares? Who cares? Well, Hollywood cares because there's a movie coming out on Tuesday night called Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey. This is a little picture graphic of it. Go ahead and throw that up there. No, not that one. That's the Milky Way. Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, the, it's not there? Well, anyways, I had a picture. <laughs> Just imagine that there's a picture of Matthew McConaughey. You know the guy with the new Lincoln Mercury commercials, you know? Okay. And it's about going to a star. Now, the nearest star is the star Proxima Centauri. Proxima Centauri, and it's 4.2 light years away. Now, being here in Brevard, we're very fond of the space shuttle and the space program. And when the space shuttle was in action, the space shuttle would go up and it would orbit the Earth. And when it was orbiting Earth, it was going at roughly 18,000 miles per hour. Okay, 18,000 miles per hour. So using that speed, 18,000 miles per hour... To get to Proxima Centauri at space shuttle speed would take us 160,000 years. 160,000 years. That's going at space shuttle speed. That's the next star closest to us besides our sun. That's our star, right? So here's the question. We're considering the stars. God told us to do this. If you haven't done this in a while, this is a good exercise. Amen. God told us to do it. He said, look up into the heavens, consider the stars and consider who made them and who called them all by name. Now, listen, in, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. There, there you go. The Milky Way galaxy. And in our sun is one of what's estimated between 100 and 300 billion stars in our galaxy. And the nearest one would take us 160,000 years to get to. Now, I've got another picture. It's a picture of the Hubble Deep Field. Now, this is with the Hubble Telescope. 
Every little cluster that you see on that picture, this is taken from Hubble, those are distant galaxies in the, in the faraway uh, universe. There are literally billions and billions of galaxies. And so the question is, here's God saying, look in the heavens, look who's made them, and who has counted them and brought them out one by one and named them. Okay, that's why we're doing this, amen? So how many stars are there? Asking that question is like asking how many grains of sand there are on all the beaches of the world. It would really be impossible to count them. But if you were to count the, the coastline and count the depth of the stand and get some, you know, acreage, you know, units and whatever and kind of come to a conclusion, this is like the best scientific answer for the number of stars in the universe. And it is this. 7 times 10 to the 24th power. That's how many stars there are. How many is that? It's a septillion stars. It's 70 billion trillion. 70 billion trillion. If, you could even, if we could begin to wrap our minds around that. You say, Pastor Charles, you're telling all, the, all of us this because, <laughs> because God asked us to consider it, didn't he? In his word, in Isaiah chapter 40, he said, look into the heavens, ask who has created these things, and who has brought them out by their number, and who has called them all by name. So 70 billion trillion stars, and God knows each and every one of them by name, he's named them. Now we've tried, we've named a bunch of them. But nowhere, even in the, I mean, we're not even getting started in naming the stars. But yet, the God of this universe knows each star, and, he know, and he's named them. Look at that, verse 26 in the NIV. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? God has named each star. So what's the significance to you tonight? You say, Charles, thanks. Thanks for the science class. Thanks for the physics and the Einstein and all the rest of it. Thanks. But what does it mean to us tonight? You consider the fact that there are upwards of 70 billion trillion stars. And you might say that this makes you feel small. You might say that it makes you feel far away from God. You might say that it makes you feel so far away from God, out of God's mind. But the opposite is true. In fact, in the very next verse in our text, God calls attention to this. And he says, why do you say, O Jacob? See, he already knew what you were thinking, right? Because God, God's pretty smart. He created the universe. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. You can look at everything that's going on. You can look at the vastness of the universe and say, I'm out of God's mind. God doesn't care. You can look at everything that's going on in the world. You can look at everything that's going on with the economy, all of it. And you can say, you know what? I'm out of God's mind. God doesn't care. And God would say to you tonight, he says, my, why do you say my way is hidden from, from the Lord? Why do you say your way is hidden? Because your way is not hidden. He cares for you. Not only is he named and brought out every star, he cares for you and he, and he calls you by name tonight. Because he loves you. Because he loves you.
He goes on. Have you not heard, verse 29, that God never gets weary, never gets tired. He extends his power towards you. He gives power to the weak. Verse 29, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. He sustains you. He gives you strength to carry on. He gives you strength to live. To live and if you will choose to worship him, to give, to give you strength to worship him. I want to close tonight's message with this. I want to look at that verse of scripture. He says, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. I want to close with the greatest way that God has extended his strength and his power towards you. This great God who's created this universe. The greatest way that he has extended his power towards you is this, and it's found in the first chapter of Ephesians, and I'm beginning at verse 18, and it says this. Paul, Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. You say, how has God worked? How has he extended his power towards you? He extends his power towards you. He extended it, the greatness of his power towards you when he, brought, when he came to this earth in the second person of the Trinity, when he went to the cross and laid his life down, and he raised it up again. This is the greatest power display in the entire universe, and we've talked about an awful lot of them tonight. You think about someone who can bring out a septillion stars, and yet that's the God who expresses his power towards you and your situation to redeem you, to love you, to bring you to himself. His body was dead three days. And the morning of the third day, he was resurrected from the dead for us. The power of God towards us. You say, how can I respond to this love and this demonstration of God's power on my, hat, on, on my behalf? The response is this. Repent of your sins. God loves you. He loves you so much. And he knows everything that anyone has ever done. And he paid the price. Think about it. The God who created a septillion stars knows every sin that's ever been committed or ever will. He doesn't like sin, but his, your sin does not shock him. Shock God. He took it all upon himself in that great exertion of power when he laid down his life and he picked it up again on your behalf. So how can you respond? Repent of your sins. Repent of your decision to go your own way and choose God. Choose to put your trust, the trust that you have, put it in Jesus Christ, who is the creator God. Amen? You say, well, I'm already following God. I've already repented of my sins. You can look to God. What is it that you have need of? What is it that would keep you from coming to, from a loving father? a gracious father, someone who loves you so much and wants to extend his powerful hand towards you. 
to demonstrate His will in your life. Call upon Him and you'll be saved. Call upon Him and He'll meet you. Call upon Him and He'll respond. He is going to lead you through. You only need to respond to the Lord. So, look up to the heavens and consider who has made all of this. All these stars. And he's counted them all, every one. And he loves you. And he loves me. And he's extended his power towards you tonight. That you might know him. That you might have relationship with him.